If you have your copy of God's Word there with you, let me invite you to take it and be finding your place in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Over the past few weeks, we've been in a series on the home where we've been taking a careful look at what the Bible has to say about the most fundamental relationships that we have. And of course, those are the relationships within the home. Uh, the relationships between wives and husbands and husbands and wives, parents and children. Uh, as far as the book of Ephesians is concerned, I've told you that the first half of Ephesians is doctrinal in nature, and the last half is very practical. And it's in the second half of Ephesians that the Apostle Paul tells the church how we are to put into practice in a very intentional way uh, our faith. We have a vast amount of wealth and resources to draw on with all that we've been given in Jesus Christ. And in chapters 5 and 6, uh, Paul explains how we're to draw on these resources as we seek to build godly marriages and families. I heard about a young pastor uh, who really he took his first part-time pastorate at a church uh, when he was still in seminary. He was a young single guy. Uh, one Sunday he happened to preach a message that he entitled 10 Rules for Raising Perfect Children. Well, after a couple of years, this young guy graduated from seminary, got married, and he had some kids of his own. And uh, he dug out that old sermon that he had preached when he was a single man, but he decided to give it a different title. And the title that he gave it was 10 Suggestions for Raising Healthy Children. Well, as those kids got older and became teenagers, he burned the whole thing and preached a new sermon that he gave the title, Help Me Jesus. <laughs> and honestly, that's the case uh, when it comes to preaching on marriage, preaching on the family. Uh, folks, we're all in this together. Being a parent is a wonderful thing. It's a sobering responsibility. Uh, I think about what the psalmist said in Psalm 127. Uh, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. It's God who gives children to moms and dads as precious gifts. And moms and dads are stewards of their little lives. And when it comes to being a parent, we may be a lot like the guy that I heard about who was at the grocery store. And he was pushing a cart that uh, contained, among other things, a screaming little baby. And uh, as the man was proceeding along the aisles, and it's really crazy if it was during social distancing days and he's having to follow the arrows at the Walmart neighborhood market, you can imagine the anxiety this guy's having to feel. But he's softly uh, whispering to this baby, uh, just keep calm, George. Don't get excited, George. Don't yell, George. And a lady who was watching him said, Sir, you are certainly to be commended for your patience in trying to calm down little George. To which the man said, Lady, I'm George. <laughs> so, listen, it takes patience, it takes patience, and more patience to be a parent. And that's true if you have small children, that's true if you have teenagers, that's true if your children are grown and even out of the house. But what the Apostle Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 is this, we're not without power, we're not without instruction. 
The same spirit-filled context for marriage also applies to what Paul has to say about children and parents uh, there within the context of the home. You remember the context for these instructions on the family. It goes back up to chapter 5, verse 18, which says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, where is an excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the secret to a Christian parent's uh, power and patience is the wealth, the storehouse of wealth that's yours in the person of the Holy Spirit who's come to live within you as a Christian mom or dad. Well, if you've got your Bible there, Ephesians 6, I want you to begin reading with me there in verse number 1. The Bible says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Older translations say, bring them up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. And so in these verses, the Apostle Paul gives instruction in the area of children and their parents. What we find here is God's word applied to the home applied to the relationship that a child is to have toward mom and dad and a relationship that mom and dad is to have toward that child. You know, a lot of historians believe that there was a seismic shift that took place in American culture in the post-World War II generation uh, with regard to all things institutional and uh, with regard to authority. I read a quote that was... uh, made by a a woman who was a writer for the New York Times. She's an author, a cultural critic. Her name is Anne Gottlieb. But she identified the 1960s as, quote, the generation that destroyed the American family. Listen to the full quote. Uh, She said, we might not have been able to tear down the state, but the family was closer. We could get our hands on it. And we believe that the family was the foundation of the state. We truly believe that the family had to be torn down to free love, which alone could heal the damage done when the atom was split to release its energy. And the first step was to tear ourselves free from our parents. Now what makes her assessment most chilling is the connection that she makes between the family and the nation. She well understands the fact that society is no better than the combined culture of the individual family units that make up that society. If you destroy the family, you destroy the nation. If you undermine the family, then you can then manipulate the society and make the society become whatever you want it to be. You know, the Bible says that the collapse of the home is always the precursor to the unraveling of any society. This is the argument that the Apostle Paul makes in the first chapter of Romans uh, when he says that humanity and unbelief 
Uh, as societies cast off the restraint and in unbelief they rebel against God, then that sets society on a chain of events, a course of events that unravel that society. And it's interesting to me that in that chapter, Paul mentions all of these characteristics of a society that has cast off divine restraint. And one of those characteristics is disobedience to parents. Uh, he says the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3 uh, when he says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. He says men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. And then he says this, disobedient to parents. So the collapse of the home, the unraveling of the family unit this is a sign that a society is in serious trouble. And so just as no building ever rises above its foundation, no nation ever rises above the strength of the family. And it's the family that Paul is dealing with here in these verses. Now, I want us to look at these instructions that are given here in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we'll look at what the Bible has to say as far as children are concerned. And then what it says as far as fathers and parents are concerned. So notice with me to begin with, uh, children and their obedience. In the first three verses of the chapter, Paul is dealing with children and their obedience. And notice he mentions the requirement of obedience. There's a command given there in verse 1. Uh, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, Paul is writing to the church in the city of Ephesus. And he doesn't call on the parents to tell their children to obey, but rather he wants the children to be in the assembly where this letter is being read to the church. And so he's addressing the children themselves. He's speaking directly to children within the Christian home. And the word that he uses there, obey, uh, translates a Greek word that means to stand under. Uh, literally, it means to, to hear under. Uh, it, it was a military word in Paul's day, and it had the idea of standing at attention and being ready to hear a command so that one can faithfully obey that command. He's simply saying that children are to do what their parents say. It's not something that's up for debate. It's not a matter of suggestion, but rather this is a divine requirement from God himself. This is how he intends the family to function. Uh, children are to obey their parents in the Lord. So the requirement of obedience. Then notice the realm of obedience. Uh, notice he says, children obey your parents in the Lord. In fact, that phrase, in the Lord, really qualifies the verb obey. You could read it this way in the original, the structure of the original language. Children, obey in the Lord your parents. The idea is that as a child obeys mom and dad, ultimately that child is obeying God. How is it that children demonstrate their obedience and faithfulness to God? They do so by being submissive and being obedient to the parents that God gave to them. So in the Lord there is the key phrase as far as the instruction is concerned. It's the same emphasis that we saw back up in chapter 5 with wives who were to submit to their husbands 
as unto the Lord. It's the same emphasis given to husbands who were to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so now he moves to the children's relationship to their parents and uses the same principle to make his argument. And the idea is that the gospel changes our family dynamic. The gospel is the motivation behind which we do everything in the home. It's the motivating factor behind a woman's relationship to her husband, a man's relationship to his wife, and a child's relationship to mom and dad. And when children obey their parents, ultimately they obey the Lord Jesus Christ. So the requirement of obedience and the realm of obedience, and then the reason for obedience is given there at the end of the verse, Uh, Paul says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Or in other words, this is righteous in the sight of God. He expresses this same argument in uh, the third chapter of Colossians, and he expresses it this way. He says in Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. God is glorified when children are in, a, in an obedient, submissive relationship to mom and dad. And again, all of this is reflective of the order with which God has designed the family. It's how God has designed leadership within the home. And again, keep in mind how the enemy tries to pervert and corrupt the design of God for marriage and the family. He wants to divide husbands and wives He wants to disrupt the relationship of children and their parents. On the heels of these instructions here in Ephesians chapter 6, he's going to tell us to be on guard against the enemy, to put on the whole armor of God. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So the enemy's not flesh and blood, but rather uh, there's an invisible enemy who wants to sow discord in our home, who wants to turn children against parents and parents against children. And when the devil does this, he's undermining the design of God. And he's wanted to do that since the garden. So how does he do this? Well, often the devil will do this in a number of ways. Uh, He may tempt a mom or a dad to make their children into an idol. And it's easy at times for parents to want to place their kids in the place of God in their life where everything revolves around the child in the home. That's not a healthy way to build a home that glorifies God. Uh, Another way, sin and selfishness may lead parents to abandon their children altogether in pursuit of self One thing I've noticed even in Christian homes is this tendency for the tail to try to wag the dog where children become the decision makers within the home rather than mom and dad. And folks, that's a distortion of the way that God has designed the family to function. Parents obeying children rather than children obeying parents. When a child is not made to be under obedience, he's set on a course in life that will lead to destruction. And so this is very, very important. And then notice the result of obedience there in verses 2 and 3. You'll notice that the Apostle Paul reaches all the way back into the Old Testament. And he references the fifth commandment which says, honor your father and mother. 
So when he gives that command, that imperative obey in verse one, it refers to action. And now when he uses the word honor here in verse two, it refers to attitude. So children are to be obedient and submitted to their parents both in action as well as attitude. Kind of like the little boy I heard about whose mother wanted him to sit down, but he just would not sit down. No matter what she said, he would not sit down. And so finally she took a hold of him and sat him down in a chair. And he looked, he looked at her with defiant eyes and said, you know, you may make me sit down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on, uh, on the inside. It's the idea of the attitude. So children are to obey their parents both in outward action as well as inward attitude. And you say, how in the world can I affect the, the attitude of my child? Well, let me tell you something. You can't change their little heart, but let me tell you, the Holy Spirit can. That's why we have got to be so dependent upon the power of God and the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our homes. The greatest need in your child's life, if you have a small child at home or small children, the greatest need is for them to be born again. Something that only God can do. They need to be saved. That's why you've got to preach the gospel to your children. That's why you've got to do what Paul's going to say here in just a minute and bring them up in the, in the discipline and the instruction, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Let the gospel just wash over them day in and day out because it's the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit that brings about change from the inside out. Our God is in the business of changing attitudes, not just simple outward actions, but attitudes inwardly that lead to change outwardly. So, so again, the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. And, and listen, Paul says this is, this, is the, this is the first commandment with a promise. And what was the promise that was attached to the fifth commandment? Well, he says in verse three, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. As the Israelite children were obedient to their parents and honored their fathers and mothers, there was a promise attached to that obedience that there would be blessing as the result of that obedience. And it would go long with them in the land that God was leading his people into. You remember he'd brought them out of bondage in Egypt, brought them into the promised land. They were to live as his covenant people that they might be blessed in the land. But God wanted them to know that their blessing in the land was largely dependent upon the condition of their homes. And as fathers and mothers were to uh, instruct their children in the ways of God and how God had been merciful and gracious to bring his people out of their slavery in Egypt and bring them into the land that he promised to give Abraham and Abraham's descendants. They were to teach the next generation and that generation was to grow up and teach the next generation and in that way things would go well with them in the land. But it doesn't take very long once Israel is in the land for this, this whole thing to be turned upside down. You don't have to turn there, but in Joshua chapter 2, after Israel had, uh, or excuse me, Judges chapter 2, after Israel had uh, conquered the land, Joshua's generation faded from view. And the Bible says in Judges chapter 2 that after Joshua's generation died, another generation arose that did not know the Lord. 
they didn't know the Lord because the generation before them had not been faithful to teach them and instruct them in the Lord. And so that generation grew up and cast off divine restraint. And, and Judges, the whole theme of the book of Judges is found in the last chapter. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There was no objective standard of right and wrong in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And the reason that happened was because there was an epic collapse of the home. Now, folks, I don't have to work too hard to show you this morning that that's exactly where we are in 2020 in the United States. What we're witnessing play out in real time on our television screens and in the media, folks, it is a, it is a collapse of the home and the family unit, even within the church of Jesus Christ, which is why we have got to cry out to God and we have got to take our homes Seriously, more so than ever before. Phil Riken said this. He said, the relationship between parent and child is the first and primary relationship, the beginning of all human society. Under ordinary circumstances, the first people that a child knows are his parents. And God intends the family to be our first hospital, first school, first government, first church. And if we do not respect authority at home, we will not respect it anywhere. If a child is taught to honor authority and respect authority at home and understands that that authority is mom and dad, God-given authority within the home and children are taught to obey mom and dad, then that child will only grow up to show honor and respect everywhere else. And that's why this is so important. So children and their obedience. Now, there's a second thing here. Let's move to the instruction that are given, uh, the instructions given to fathers or parents. Notice fathers and their obligation. It's seen in verse number four where the Bible says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So it's, it's interesting that the apostle Paul addresses the fathers here. And the Greek word that's used there, it's a masculine noun. Um, it's the same word we get the word paternity from or paternal in, in reference to uh, fatherhood. Right? This doesn't mean that moms have no responsibility whatsoever. Uh, this, is, this is really a command that applies to both dad and mom, parents. But God has intended for dad to take the lead role in the development and the spiritual formation of his children. So by using this masculine noun, uh, pater, it's the Greek word, the Apostle Paul is placing the leadership of the home squarely on the father's shoulders. And so notice, notice what he has to say about a father's influence. Um, which, by the way, the culture in Ephesus, where these believers were living, was heavily influenced by, uh, by Greek and Roman custom and thought. Uh, in those days, Roman law even stated that a father had the power of life and death over the individual members of his household. 
Uh, a Roman father, all he had to do was basically say the word and it was life or death for any of the members of his household. And, and very often, a newborn baby would be placed at its father's feet who would then determine the fate of that baby. If the father picked the infant up, and all this was Roman custom, but if the father picked the infant up and cradled that infant in his arms, then the child was allowed to stay in the home. It was a gesture that the father wanted the child. But if the father walked away from the infant, then the infant was disposed of. If it was a healthy infant, it perhaps could be uh, turned to uh, uh, slavery and trafficking and that kind of thing. But the point is, if the father didn't want the child, the child was disposed of. I read a quote by, uh, that was made by Seneca, who was a Roman statesman uh, who lived at the exact same time that the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. And Seneca was a statesman in Rome, but he said this, we slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge a knife into a sick cow, children born weak or deformed, we drown. You say, well, that was then, and boy, we sure have come a long way in society. Really? I'm not so sure we have. Because according to most reports, the primary cause for children being in foster homes today, the primary factor, it's not divorce, it's not financial destitution, it's not the death of parents, but simply the disinterest of parents. The disinterest of parents in children is the primary factor that leads children to go into foster care. If you don't believe that, you ask our dear friends at the Baptist Children's Homes here in North Carolina. You say, well, where does this kind of out mindset come from? Folks, it comes from the enemy. It comes as the result of the curse of sin, such blatant disregard for life. And I don't have to work hard to draw lines of comparison to where we are in 21st century America. And we could spend all day talking about the symptoms and the manifestations of sin. That's all the world around us is doing right now, talking about the symptoms. But there's a greater problem in the American conscience and it's the heart of individual men and women. We've got to keep coming back to the core issue, and it's the issue of the heart, the depravity of the human heart. Sin has led to such a distortion and broken view of God's design that life, think about how messed up we are in 21st century America where, where a tree is, has more sanctity in the minds of some than an infant in his or her mother's womb. How did we get there? We get there because sin takes its toll out on our worldview and the way that we live our life. Without godliness and without righteousness and without the life of God inwardly in a person, that person will not understand the world around them. Even that person's sense of justice will be skewed and messed up. And I am all for justice, but let me tell you something. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you, you don't have an accurate view of, of what's just. You can't. Because Christ is not enthroned in your heart. He is the judge of the earth. He alone is the one who is just and determines what is just. 
And so in verse four, the text says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. The influence of a father is what Paul is getting at here. I think the NIV translates it this way. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't provoke your children in such a way that they lose control and they go on to kick against authority. And the idea is that through his actions, a father can push a child over the edge. He can goad them toward a life of resentment, a life of anger. How how does a father do this, or how can a parent do this? Listen to what Dr. Chuck Swindoll says about this. He says a father can provoke his children to wrath in a number of ways. To begin with, he can make unreasonable demands for perfection. The dad who just holds his children to such a standard of perfection that they can't live up to loads that child down with an unrealistic burden and that child grows up feeling like he or she never has the approval of mom or dad. And then constant nagging over minor infractions. He says that fathers can provoke their children to wrath by not leaving enough room for freedom of expression and personal growth in their lives or lack of encouragement and affirmation from dad. Dads, do you verbally encourage your children and give them affirmation and verbally tell them that you love them? They need to hear that from your lips. Fathers can provoke their children to anger through harsh, unloving rebuke or cruelty. Here's one. Public embarrassment is another way that parents can provoke their children to anger, to wrath. Public embarrassment. Now, as a PK who can personally vouch to the fact that often I made it into my dad's sermon illustrations. I can tell you public embarrassment. I've experienced that before, as have my two children. So I've got to plead the fifth on this one myself. But I think about parents who constantly berate their children if their children are on the basketball court or on a soccer field. I've seen parents literally lose their minds over a missed shot and verbally berate their children from the stands. Everybody else around you is humiliated for your child. If you're that dad or you're that mom, you need to know that. You make yourself look like an idiot when you do that. And it breaks the spirit of your child, and it provokes them to anger and resentment. Swindoll goes on and says, inconsistent discipline, showing favoritism over one child against another. In fact, you see this in the Old Testament in many of the lives of the patriarchs who showed favoritism. You think about Jacob and how Jacob showed favoritism among his sons. Joseph and Benjamin were the favored sons. That caused anger and resentment in the hearts and lives of Jacob's other sons. Which then led them to be so jealous of Joseph that they sold him into slavery. On and on and on we could go with examples of how parents and fathers in particular can provoke their children and push their children over the edge if they're not careful. So that's a father's influence and the apostle deals with that. And then notice the father's instruction. He deals with the negative when he says don't provoke your children to wrath or to anger. But then he switches to the positive and in the last part of verse 4 he outlines the right way for parents to raise their children. He says, bring them up 
Don't provoke them to anger, but be intentional in the way that you bring them up. And the verb that he uses there, it's the same word that he uses back up in chapter 5, verse 29, translated as nourishes. The way that a husband is, you know, he's to love his wife as Christ loves the church. He nourishes his own flesh, and so he's to nourish his wife. That's the same verb that Paul uses here uh, with reference to fathers who are to nourish, bring up their children. He's saying you've got to bring up your children with intentionality, with nurturing. Don't leave them to fend for themselves. Don't leave them to come up with their own worldview. But be intentional in the way that you teach your children, the way that you instruct your children, the way that you impart godly wisdom to your children because they're going to need it as they navigate post-Christian culture. Don't let Facebook, don't let YouTube, don't let social media be the ones that influence their thought processes and the way that they view life in God's world. You bring them up. And he uses terms like discipline and instruction to show how dads have to do this and moms have to do this. That word discipline there, uh, it means training or nurturing. One person has said that it even uh, refers to a balance of both love and limits. You know, Christian homes need to be balanced. You know, Jesus was the perfectly balanced human being, full of both grace and truth. Our God is a God of love, and he's also a God of limits. And as fathers, we've got to be men of love and men of limits. Our homes have to be marked by both love and limits. It means we've got to be intentional when it comes to the growth and the spiritual needs and the development of our children. There's got to be a delicate balance of unconditional love that's poured out as well as solid boundaries that are laid down. I read something by Ray Steadman, and I thought this was so profound when I read it. He said, there are two styles of parenting that tend to produce rebellion in children. And those two styles, he called them indulgence on one hand and harshness on the other. He says, both make a child feel unwanted and insecure. An overindulgent parenting style leads a child to wonder Don't my parents care about me enough to set boundaries and give me discipline? The child grows up into a spoiled and immature adult, expecting always to get his own way, never caring about the needs or feelings of others. An overly harsh parenting style, however, makes a child think this, my parents always hurt me. They're unfair. And so I'm going to harden my emotions so that they can't hurt me anymore. When I escape my parents' control, I won't be anyone's victim anymore. I'll do all the shouting and all the bullying and all the hurting. So you can parent in both extremes. You can be an indulgent parent. There's no limits that set in your home. You're setting your your child up for failure when you do that. Or you can be the one who has all of these limits but doesn't have any love and any grace and any compassion. You're also setting them up for failure when you do that. So bringing up children with discipline, this word that Paul uses here, it avoids both of those extremes. Indulgence on one hand, harshness on the other. It's interesting to me that this same word was used by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. 
where the writer of Hebrews speaks to believers and says, have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. That's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6, 4 for discipline. Chastening. Don't be discouraged when you're rebuked by the Lord. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. So God's discipline in my life as one of his children is not a sign that he's against me, but it's proof that he's for me. It's not evidence that he doesn't love me, but rather the opposite is true. It's proof that he does love me. So when we discipline our children, it's not, it's, no matter how they cry, no matter what they say, it's not evidence that you're unloving, but rather it's evidence of true love because you're concerned for the direction that their little life is going to take. So bring them up in discipline and then bring them up in instruction, Paul says. That refers to teaching and exhortation. So he's saying you bring them up with discipline, that's your deeds, but then you bring them up with instruction, that's your words. You've got to put in mind the things of God above everything else in your home. And with your words, you've got to teach them the truth of God. Teach them theology. Teach them who God is. Uh, Tell them what Christ has done for their little souls. Older translations, I think the King James says admonition. The nurture, admonition of the Lord. The idea is that parents impart godly wisdom to their children. You think about Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The beginning of the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then in verse 8, the writer of Proverbs says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Listen to what your father's saying to you. Don't forsake your mother's teaching. They will become graceful garlands for your head and pendants for your neck. It's vital for your success in life and in God's world for you to have the instruction, the godly instruction and wisdom that's passed along from mom and dad to you. So, children are to obey their parents. Parents are to follow these obligations and to not provoke their children to wrath, but to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, I want to bring this to a close, and I want to give you something that came from Dr. Howard Hendricks, who was the great professor, longtime tenured professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, But Dr. Hendricks wrote so many books and influenced so many people around the world uh, with his writings, but he came up with what he called seven pointers for parents. This is very practical, and I want to give this to you as I close this morning. He said, number one, he said, parents need to provide an atmosphere in the home that builds warm, close, personal relationships. Make sure your home is a place of belonging and acceptance. That means you spend time with your children so that they know you and you know them. And then number two, he says, be a good example to your children. Your faith and your values will more likely be caught by your kids than taught to your kids. Make sure that The tongue in your shoe and the tongue in your mouth are both traveling in the same direction. Number three, he says, allow gradual emancipation from the apron strings of parental authority. 
Begin early to feed your children responsibility a little bit at a time. Evaluate the results and adjust their freedom according to their ability to handle it. And number four, he said, when children need guidance and counsel, he said, provide it in a relaxed and informal setting. I don't know if you're like our family, but you still have kids in your home. The dinner table has become such a wonderful place for us to gather together, especially during the circumstances of the last three months. And the dinner table provides a great opportunity for instruction. Number five, he said, set limits. Children want and need the security of boundaries and restrictions. But you've got to discipline your children in the context of love. They will not accept your limits unless they know they're loved. And you tell them you love them not only with words, but more importantly, with your time, your attention, and your genuine interest. Number six, he says, apply the law of natural consequences as they grow up. As your children grow in their ability to make decisions, let them decide, but also let them live with the results of their decisions. If we make all the decisions for our children, then they will lose confidence in their own ability to make decisions. If we always bail them out and shield them from the consequences of their decisions, they'll grow up with an irresponsible attitude, expecting never to have to deal with the consequences of their behavior. And then he says, number seven, most importantly, above all, surround your children with a fortress of prayer. Trust the Spirit of God to care for them, to cover for your inevitable mistakes. And it's inevitable that we make parenting fails. But trust that God will bring your children to a place of faith and maturity. You see, the thing is, folks, we have, we have participation. We've got to participate with the Holy Spirit as far as what God wants for, the, for our children, for our homes. We have responsibility Oh, but we can rely upon gospel power and the presence of God with us. I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. And most certainly that applies to raising children in such a difficult, difficult day. Would you bow your heads with me right there where you are? Heads bowed and eyes closed. I came across an old proverb that said something along these lines. It said, one generation plants the trees while another gets the shade. One generation plants the trees, another gets the shade. In other words, our generation lives in the shade of some trees that were planted by our ancestors. The ideas of our parents' and grandparents' generation helped develop the kind of civilization that we inherited from them. And yet, it's also true that our generation's ideas will shape tomorrow's culture. And who knows what our children stand to inherit. Don't you want to provide some shade for your kids? Gospel shade? In order for that to be the case, then our homes have got to have a distinctive cross shape about them. Gospel-saturated homes. Homes that are built and founded 
upon the solid bedrock of the Word of God. We've got a lot of work to do. Oh, but we're not alone in this as Christian moms and dads. Do you know Jesus is your Savior? Friend, if not, the first step for you to have a happy, healthy home life is to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. Confessing your sin and turning from your sin and believing that Christ died on the cross for you. And think about there at the cross how a perfect son demonstrated perfect obedience to a perfect father in heaven. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, you've inherited Christ's righteousness that's been poured out and credited to your account. Your sin's forgiven. Lord, in the name of Jesus this morning, my prayer is that our homes would be protected by the ideologies and the attack of the enemy today who's worked so hard for so long to divide homes, to cause a wedge of division between children and parents and parents and children. But the enemy is defeated in Jesus' strong and mighty name. And God, we need your strength We need your wisdom. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that we have it in the pages of your word and the person of your spirit who lives within us as believers. And for those who are watching this now, Lord, that may not know Christ, I pray that right there where they are in an attitude of repentance and faith, that they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in his death and resurrection and confess him as their Savior and Lord. And Jesus, may you be the Lord in our homes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.